On this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, we discuss the latest news, review recent COVID-19 lessons, discuss survey activity, review the newly issued CMS guidance related to the emergency preparedness testing exercise requirements, coronavirus disease 2019, or COVID-19. And in our focus segment, we discuss patient collections with Joe Outlaw from SIS. This episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey is sponsored by Surgical Information Systems, SIS. SIS's mission is to deliver solutions and services that help surgery providers, regardless of care setting, improve their organization so they can deliver the highest level of care to their patients. For more information, go to sisfirst.com. Welcome to episode 114 of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey for October 5th, 2020, recording from our studios in Spencerport, New York. This is Susan Cronkite, Chief Researcher for the ASC Podcast with John Gailey and Senior Nurse Consultant for Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. Joining me is John Gailey, Chief Operating Officer and Owner of AHS, recognized as one of the nation's leading experts in the ambulatory surgery industry. So we have big news. Um, yeah, this is exciting news compared to everything else going on. This puts things in perspective. So you welcomed your first granddaughter. Mm-hmm. You have two grandsons, but you welcomed your first granddaughter. And if I may say so, she is the prettiest <laughs> young baby I have seen. Yeah, I agree. We have a picture of her like a day old smiling. Not even a day, 12 and hours. I <laughs> I, we might have just, it might have been a fluke, you know, it just kind of caught a funny expression, but I, I'm going with it was a big smile. So. <laughs> well, she definitely is beautiful and uh, she's doing well. Yep, and, and so Megan's is mom. Doing well. She's our, she's one of our employees and, That's right. and my daughter, of course. So. Absolutely. We are a family owned business, as we've mentioned before. And we have two pregnant women <laughs> right now because uh, my uh, daughter mm-hmm. is about to make me a grand grandpa <laughs> also <laughs> coming up so and she's due in uh, the middle of November so we're going to have two people out for a while and obviously it's going to put a, a dent on things but mm-hmm. they're very exciting times and this is my first grandchild so yeah. I'm very very excited so a lot of a lot of good things going on in the midst of everything else that's happening in mm-hmm. this world right now and just as exciting as that is the studio upgrade. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> I know we mentioned it quite a bit, but we have been putting a lot of money back into the studio. Uh, we have new lighting, which doesn't do anybody that's listening to this any good. But with the new camera, uh, Sue looked a little red. So we decided we needed to uh, <laughs> to put some lighting on her whenever she's on the uh, on the camera. It's funny how, you know, uh, there, there's no natural light coming into the studio mm-hmm. here. So mm-hmm. we have to, to supplement it with uh, different types of light so we're doing that because we have a we have a lot coming up you know we have uh, several conferences coming up virtual conferences coming up that we're going to be uh, working on so it's important to, uh, to put money back into the the podcast and to the virtual conferences that we're doing and then your your computer uh, kind of uh, died um, so we had to replace a new one mm-hmm. so now she, now I'm jealous because her computer is actually faster than my computer here in the studio so of course that means now I'm going to have to upgrade mine <laughs> but most importantly we finally have new headphones. I think Uh we've talked about this before, how frustrating it is to, you know, that uh, our headphones never seem to work right. So uh, these these things are fantastic. They really, they feel good. They sound good. And and we can hear what we're saying. So that's Well, with all the equipment and then our headphones were always causing problems. We'd get static or they would suddenly turn off or... So it's definitely. And they're matching now. So instead of like you did have the unicorn headphone for a while, which worked (laughs) all right. But uh, now now these are plain old studio headphones. But they are comfortable too, which makes a big difference when we do the conferences. Yeah, when we're on it for hours. Mm -hmm. Um, We have a lot going on. Of course, we always say that. Uh, We're gearing up for our next major virtual conference, which is in December, December 3rd and 4th. 
on finance, accounting, and reimbursement. It's two days. And you, if you sign up now, you can still get $100 off uh, uh, before that discount period ends. Um, we're also working on a conference on credentialing. I'm going to talk about this a little bit later, but uh, credentialing has become a, an issue again uh, with many centers. So uh, we've decided to do a full-day conference on it since there really aren't a lot of other options out there, as we've talked about. And uh, and then we're going to do an update date on uh, COVID-19 infection control. Lori and I are working on that, uh, which will be uh, can be used for in-services for your staff. Mm-hmm. And and then uh, you and I were just talking about uh, emergency preparedness mm-hmm. and making sure nurses are prepared for it. So we're going to try to put together a program for that. So a lot, a lot going on. Our goal here at, at the podcast, of course, is to give you the latest information and opportunities for education that you might not have anywhere else. And since we are kind of the industry's leading uh, source for uh, educational programs, uh, it is our duty to kind of come up with unique uh, things to talk about. So that that's coming up. And we are going to promise to try to get back to regular schedules here. We we have been so busy. I've been on the road so much that we haven't really had, plus a baby, um, yeah. you know, we haven't had much time <laughs> you know, we to- We keep trying, but- I, <laughs> I know. To, not a lot of time to get into the studio. So we got a lot going on and uh, we promise we'll try to get back to a regular schedule. So let's talk a little bit about the news. Uh, why don't you start off with okay. uh, President Trump? Yep. Well, everybody's heard, obviously, that uh, Trump tested positive. And, and this is not any type of type of a political statement, but it just points out the need to rely on masks and social distancing and not just the testing because they were being tested, I think, Daily. Very frequently, Um, yeah. You know, and and there can be false negatives, or by the time you test positive, you've already been around people. So I think just as we move forward with this. I think it also talks a little bit about, I mean, one of the doctors Mm -hmm. that I work with uh, has kind of emphasized, he's kind of has very scary uh, thought, and he Mm -hmm. he basically said, you know, John – Eventually, this is going to affect most of the population, which most of us, I think, hope that that's not the case. But mm-hmm. uh, he's a very well-respected physician, and uh, uh, I, I take his advice very seriously. So uh, I hope that's not the case. But it certainly is, seems yeah. like it's a possibility, especially with uh, you know how easy it is to spread and the fact that you know we're opening up more and more. And just look how quickly it did spread through the White House and, and yeah. the upper levels of government. So now I did see, and I and I didn't actually write this down, but I did see an article the other day that said that the viral load is getting less and less right. in people as they're testing. So maybe, you know, even if we are all eventually affected, let's put it off a little bit. <laughs> maybe right. it'll be less intense. Right. That's the point behind, as I understand it, with the, the viral load uh, con- uh, conversation is mm-hmm. those that get a lower um, viral load still get it, but don't have mm-hmm. the, the level of symptoms that everybody else does, which means that if, if you're going to get it, hopefully you're going to do it with a, a, a relatively low um, viral load there. Uh, the Texas Ambulatory Surgery uh, Center Society asked the ASC community to share challenges that they faced and and uh, changes they've embraced uh, since the COVID-19 pandemic. And this was reported in Becker's ASC. Uh, for more information, beckersasc.com. So they, they shared three pros. And this was kind of interesting, Sue. Improved infection control throughout the facility, specifically with providers. This is so true. I've seen this already that, that you know, now providers who uh, never really – Let's be honest. They never really took it terribly seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, now they're they're talking about it all the time. Now when it personally affects them, obviously, or there is a danger that they're going to be affected, um, this has really made uh, just basic infection control, wearing the mask all the time, wearing um, you know good hand hygiene. I think we're seeing a huge improvement in all of this. I've seen it in sterile processing too. Some of our mm-hmm. centers which always seem to be challenged in trying to get the uh, the employees in those centers to uh, to wear PPE. Properly, you know, sometimes they'll wear it, but they don't wear it quite, uh, quite correctly. And and now we're seeing that uh, that changing. A second pro was uh, extra effort in screening, sanitizing, and here it's to guidelines. Very true that we're seeing, you know, uh, very careful cleaning, um, very notable cleaning in our centers uh, and uh, ongoing cleaning and, and, again, taking that very seriously. And a better understanding of appropriate donning and doffing of personal protective equipment, which uh, I didn't even know the term donning and doffing until uh, Lori introduced it to me. It's obviously something that you nurses know all about, but now it's a thing and, and certainly understanding how best to uh, uh, to put the uh, the PPE on and off is extremely important. And then there were three cons. You want to mention the cons? 
Sure. Society's fatigue with masks and social distancing. How you know, true. We're all feeling Absolutely. That. I think we're just getting tired of it. I, I, I see it, you know, every day that it, everything's a lot more of a struggle and just, mm-hmm. you know, maintaining social distancing, I think is, is, uh, is a struggle because we're, as humans, we, mm-hmm. we, are, we like to be close to it, just like our puppy who wants to be touching us all the time. <laughs> you know, we as, as humans want yeah. to, uh, you know, want to be around other people. And I think the social distancing is, is probably the toughest thing for me. And even in just in stores and things, I notice it's not happening anywhere near as much. Right. People just aren't, you know, we're just getting kind of used to it and aren't thinking about it. Right. Uh, some public pushback about COVID-19 related guidelines. And I think that that relates to, you know, the government's uh, ongoing, like we listen to our governor, we're in, we live in New York, mm-hmm. you know, uh, he, and what was it? an hour and a half session and really was just the same thing repeated over again. I, and, and we could have taken a recording from March and put it here or April and put it mm-hmm. here and it would have been the same thing. And I think people are just getting tired of hearing it over and over again. Obviously they need to hear it, but yeah. I think after, you know, I think we got to come up with some unique ways, you know, maybe we have mm-hmm. to put it to a rap song or something <laughs> like that. Uh, but you Make know, we're hearing, yeah, I, I mean, yeah. It, it just, when you hear it the same way, mm-hmm. it's like education in general, yeah. you got to teach people in different ways or mm-hmm. communicate communicate in different ways. And certainly uh, this lecturing, I think, is starting, is starting to wear on people. And PPE shortages. And this is still prevalent. And that, that just, I think this was something I was going to mention a little bit later, but I, I, what I'm doing and what we're doing within our own company is as we find, you know, good deals on uh, like KN95s, we're using KN95s, which are non-medical type masks, but they're, they're very useful for non-surgical settings. Uh, so we use them, we wear them in the company when we're, we're out and around as much as possible. So I've been picking those up, at least the high quality ones up as I see the price drop down or as mm-hmm. I see a good price. And I'm just stocking up and as I can get them, as I can afford it, I'm picking them up. And I think that's a piece of advice we should make is that don't, you know, don't overpay right now unless you absolutely no. need to, but stock up and overstock and yeah. find places to put it uh, in the trunk of your yeah, you car, wanna, whatever you need. <laughs> you don't want to hoard it, but as we saw when it first hit, you yeah. couldn't get any of the things we needed, the, right. you know. And sanitizer and everything. And toilet paper. Toilet so. paper, yeah. <laughs> we, we have an entire bedroom. Like, allocate. Uh, <laughs> no, kidding. We, we, we don't do that. Luckily but uh, not. we do have enough, yes. yes. And I saw in Becker's GI and endoscopy newsletter something we've talked about before, the effect of putting off all of these, yeah. um, you know, so-called elective procedures. So AmSurge reported that almost 200,000 patients have missed their colonoscopies due to the pandemic, and they estimate that 32,000 more will also miss uh, that screening to the end of the year. So they're saying basically that it's going to continue, that people are still leery to go in to have their Mm -hmm. colonoscopies done. Well, and probably depending, but if if things ramp up again, like they're, you know, if the numbers do. So of the cases missed so far, it's estimated that 850 of them would have tested positive. So that's a lot of people to be facing. testing positive for cancer. For cancer, yeah. For yeah, so they um, a lot of things have been put off that that really are are going to make it much more serious to treat. Yeah, one of our GI doctors kind of pointed out that they're seeing seeing more um, complicated cases uh-huh. coming through uh-huh. uh, because of the delay in getting treatment and the fact that uh, you know that if they had gotten treatment, it, it might uh-huh. not be um, life threatening, yeah. um, but it wouldn't be as severe as it ended up being. So yeah, that was it may have been a screening thing, and now people are going in only if they have reason to be frightened. Correct, and, you know they see symptoms. Right, and the winner of the Triple H C Bernard A. Kirshner Innovations and Quality Improvement Award, which was announced September 17th, was the Surgery Center of Fairfield County in Fairfield, Connecticut. Now, I mention this because they focused on sharps and biomedical waste disposal um, for reducing costs and minimizing environmental impact. And I think improper use of sharps containers and other medical waste containers is a universal problem with any kind of health care. I know when I used to work in the hospital, and I see it as well in the centers. so either the staff doesn't fully understand where to dispose of different items or they just use whatever is close by. Yeah. Um, this facility aimed for a 25% reduction but ended up with a 43.4% reduction in sharps and biomedical waste containers. They basically, you know, they checked to see what was in there that was not appropriate and then they did some printouts and, and in-services to show um just to really specify for people what goes where, you know, just right. some re-education. And I, I just uh, anecdotally, just as I visit centers and I visit, uh, 
you know, Triple H C, you know, do uh, do surveys. This is an a, as you mentioned, it's a universal problem. I'm seeing uh, consistently, probably every place I go, uh, at least one incident of uh, non appropriate use of the sharps containers. And yeah. again, r- probably the biggest pet peeve I have is making sure that anything that goes into those, the syringes need to be emptied into. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, you know, like a neutralizing agent, like uh, Arcs Destroyer or something yep. similar to that. Uh, and, and, uh, and of course, uh, vials need to be emptied also. So uh, that, that's, a, that's a big issue. Mm-hmm. That's a big uh, thing uh, now. And it, it's certainly something that we as surveyors are looking out for. Yeah. And it's not just a regulatory thing. I'm, I don't know what the cost is associated, but I'm sure it's you don't want to be paying cheap. to have yeah. papers and, and things like that paid for. By you know, in the, by disposing in the sharps container. Right. So I also thought I'd mention if any Triple HC accredited organizations would like to submit a QI study that they feel has made a big impact in their center, they can go to triplehc.org and look for the Kirshner Award information. The deadline um, right now is October thirtieth, so it's kind of running uh, out of time unless you happen to have the information there. But it's something to keep an eye on. It's it's you know nice to. Toot your own horn or whatever if you come up with something and share your ideas. Just a point of information, uh, Bernard uh, Kirshner, who who I happen to know and was introduced uh, to uh, very early in my career, was, uh, you know, one of the first uh, people on the ASC uh, scene. Uh, in the Northeast, and he uh, he made a huge impact uh, before his passing, obviously, and uh, this uh, this award honors him, and uh, it's a great thing that we're that Triple H C is doing, and and being able to uh, acknowledge people that have uh, put significant efforts forward in their quality improvement program. And we found some resources on CloroxPro.com. You can go there for cleaning resources such as videos, checklists, infographics, studies. Um, you can search by facility type. Or just click into resources and education. There's a few things there that might be useful. So, and again, any type of training programs mm-hmm. that you can give to your staff. I, I mean, I think yeah. we just assume people know how to clean, uh, and cleaning staff in particular have to have training. We need to demonstrate that training, and mm-hmm. and uh, just you know, obviously, make their jobs a little bit easier. I, I think uh, any re- yeah, free resources such as this is is very useful, mm-hmm. and especially if you can find infographics, those checklists, like we were talking about. Right. You know. You stop paying attention if you hear things said the same way right. all the time. So maybe put up a different poster or something like that to remind yeah, people. If your poster is starting to yellow, maybe it's time to change it up <laughs> yes. there. So, of course, people if it's yellow, it probably means it's not covered in something that needs That's to That's <laughs> true. Then they've got other issues. Um, and there was an interesting article in HLM, or Health Leaders Media, that pointed out the lack of emergency preparedness training for nurses at every education level. Um, if we receive any at all, it, it isn't really very extensive. So when we look at what's happening around the world right now with all the fires, flooding, the pandemic, uh, the violence, I think it's just really an important issue as nurses are often called upon in these situations. And we'd be much better equipped if we had some focused training. So as we talked about, we'd like to, to do some hopefully type come of up with something you know. like that because you just don't see that a lot. Sometimes the active shooters, but there's just so much more to it than, right, than right. we we would really, I think, it would be very useful. And we will try to include that content as we move forward with the podcast also. Mm-hmm. So as we're trying to find, you know, topics that are of uh, interest and, and necessary for our, uh, for our listeners. The CDC is updating its guidelines to include the risk of airborne transmission, although it is still mostly spread by droplet to people within six feet of each other. They continue to recommend social distancing and keeping indoor areas well ventilated when possible. So that continues to uh, evolve. Uh, I know the distance has become a, uh, an issue now. Is six feet enough? But I, I don't yeah. know. I mean, how humanly you can go any further than six feet apart? You know, otherwise, because you that, that I think once you get further than that, you can't hear somebody mm-hmm. very well at that distance. Yeah, so. and I think part of that is unfortunately just people should still wear the masks because right. even if you're outside or or you think you're well spaced, if there is an instance where it's airborne. You know, you could walk right through the right. area that somebody just left, although they did say it's still much more likely to be droplet spread right. and occasionally contact, but very, you know, not that much. 
So CMS, in its uh, guidance to surveyors, released uh, guidance related to the emergency preparedness testing exercise requirements for coronavirus disease 2019, COVID-19. And this, so uh, just a little bit of background here. On September 30th, 2019, the, uh, the CMS published the Medicare and Medicaid program regulatory provisions to promote program efficiency, transparency, and burden reduction, fire safety requirements for certain dialysis centers, hospitals, critical access centers, and changes promote innovation, flexibility, improvement, and patient care final rule, which revised the requirements for emergency preparedness. And this did affect uh, outpatient centers, such as surgery centers also. And revisions to the final rule included that uh, that CMS remove the requirements for facil- facilities to document efforts to contact local and uh, state and federal emergency preparedness officials and for facilities to document their participation in collaborative and cooperative planning efforts. So instead of uh, demonstrating it through a letter, you were to uh, demonstrate it by uh, showing that you've reached out to and or participate in any community-wide efforts that exist in your community. CMS also revised the cycles for review and updates required for emergency preparedness programs. So instead of every, every year, you could update it every two years. Uh, and then lastly, and probably the more important one for all of us, is CMS revised the training program requirements, specifically that facilities develop and maintain a training program based on the facility's emergency plan annually by requiring facilities to provide training biannually every two years after facilities conduct initial training for their emergency program. So, and however, uh, additional training is required when the emergency plan is significantly updated. So, more specifically, the rule changed so that you had to do either a full-scale exercise uh, or participate in the community-wide exercise every other year. And then that other year, you can do a table-type exercise. So... The question comes as to what is a full-scale exercise, and facilities may need to conduct an exercise of choice. In other words, that every other year is what we call an exercise of choice, something that you can choose to do. And one of the things that we're recommending is that you consider uh, the COVID-19 situation and and your response to it as an exercise. So for all of our facilities, uh, for our second quarter uh, disaster drill, we have written up the response to the COVID-19 and all the lessons. And, and these are tend to be very long drills now because of all the lessons that we learned from it. So we're working on uh, on that for all of our centers. So I would be one recommendation I'd make is for your uh, annual drill this year, make it a COVID-19 drill. And mm-hmm. if you're a Triple HC center, of course, you have to do quarterly drills uh, for your disaster plan. So this could be your second quarter plan. Now, as part of this release to the surveyors, CMS provided a worksheet that surveyors would have in order to evaluate your your program. So we're going to post a uh, a link to that uh, that download so you can see exactly what the surveyors will have in front of them when they're questioning you about the emergency preparedness plan and your response to it. Let's talk a little bit about some of the recent experiences we've had. Uh, first of all, we're we're starting to see a lot more surveys. We've had what, what, what has it been uh, four surveys in ten days? We did. I think so. And uh, you're working on a plan of correction right now for for one, mm-hmm. actually a very simple one. And um, yes, thankfully. So we're seeing that activity is way up. And by the way, the exp- we mentioned last time that uh, the first surveys that we had were with uh, relatively inexperienced surveyors, or probably a better way of saying it, surveyors that don't survey a lot. And they mm-hmm. we found that they were struggling they, to to get things done on time, which is always a problem, even with me. But uh, but these particular surveyors in the beginning were and were in particular experiencing problems. So some of the uh, the more experienced surveyors are back. It's been great to uh, I've interacted because I know a lot of them. So uh, it's great to see them able to travel again and. Uh, that's been a real pleasure to, to, to work with people that really get into the weeds very quickly and, and get through a survey very efficiently. Uh, other recent experiences that we're having, staffing shortages, we've mentioned this before, but it is really uh, getting tight in some areas here, especially nursing staff. Uh, though it is across the board, I think, I mean, even clerical staff were having some issues with uh, getting back, especially those that might have small young families that might not be able to get back to work because of having to take care of their families at home. The other thing that we've kind of talked a little bit about is the leadership gap that we're seeing, uh, particularly uh, we're seeing a lot of new administrators. We're seeing a lot of new nurse managers. Uh, we're finding a lot of these individuals are younger and perhaps with a lot less experience out there 
Uh, they definitely need more training. They need mentoring. And uh, so that's one of the reasons that we're doing a boot camp. We'll talk about that in our third segment again. Yeah. Uh, but we're doing the administrators boot camp to try to give uh, a very intensive training program mm-hmm. for new administrators, new nurse managers. I put them together, even though we call it an administrators boot camp, really a lot of nurse managers who are the highest level uh, administrative individual or mm-hmm. manage, managerial individual really are administrators and, and this boot camp is for them. And what's nice about this boot camp is it's very personalized. So it, it mm-hmm. includes education for the cohort as well as one-on-one sessions with me, which I think will be very beneficial. So this leadership gap uh, is not going away and uh, trying to find uh, uh, you know somebody to take on the, the challenge of administration, nurse management is, uh, is, is not going to go away very quickly. I think we're going to find ourselves uh, with this leadership gap for some time to come. And then I think what we're also finding is that organizations are starting to say, wait a minute, we're going to have to outsource some of this. And uh, you know, there's various aspects of it. You know, companies like Ambitory Healthcare Strategies, of course, exist. Uh, you know, for organizations that want to outsource the regulatory oversight. But I think we're finding, uh, you know, even management companies are struggling to figure out how to manage that daunting task, especially if they're a relatively small uh, regulatory department. Uh, so again, reasons why uh, the Ambitory Healthcare Strategies has grown so much is because of everything that's going on, and people really just kind of getting frustrated uh, with having to keep up with it or trying to find ways to keep up with it on their own. You know, Sue, I'm starting to see, we, we talk about mm-hmm. this quite a bit because of my frustration when I come back from my travels. We're just noticing issues with areas that have really never been a problem before. And credentialing, yeah, I mean, credentialing is problematic, but the types of problems we're experiencing where, you know, uh, it's just real. I think it has a lot to do with, like you were mentioning, with the nurse managers, all the turnovers, yeah. people that are inexperienced. It's not a job that you can just go into and pick it up just by reading some things. And I right. think also because if people leave, they there's one person maybe that was really a pro at it at right. the center and they leave, somebody else comes in, they have nobody to train them. Well, and during COVID, people might have left. With mm-hmm. never expecting to leave permanently. Yeah, and then they didn't come and back. And then they didn't then, come back. And that's yeah. what, that's what I have found mm-hmm. uh, with these challenges I've run into with the credentialing. And, and now I, what's happened is you and I have had to take on more of the credentialing yeah. oversight role, and which so we've much really more. never had to do before. Yeah, and so much more complicated when it's been let go. We've had some instances where somebody left and it was kind of forgotten about for a little right. while. And, and all of a sudden you're trying to put these pieces back together and yeah, it's so much it's more difficult. it's very time consuming. So that so to that end, again, we're putting mm-hmm. together a training program on uh, credentialing. That'll be a full yeah. day program. I don't know when we're going to fit it in, but it needs to be done, even if we just record it and then make it available mm-hmm. you know, later on. But, uh, uh, but I would like to do it live because I think it would be nice to get some feedback from people in the mm-hmm. audience as Questions. we did with all yeah. of our other conferences. Uh, so, you know, keep an eye out for that. And then you know, this whole – I put this down in the in my notes here. The issue of returning to normal, one of the questions I ask all the time is, you know, are, you know how, how close are you to your uh, – the volume levels that you had yeah. before? And most of the time the answer is we're getting very close, but it's taken us longer to do that. Mm-hmm. I get concerned with those organizations say, yeah, we're back to normal. You know, nothing else has changed because that means that, that something's not right. Yeah, you can't do what you used to do plus all of the new requirements in the same amount of time. Or with You're the same number of people in the same amount yes. of time. You might be yeah. able to throw more staff mm-hmm. in, and we are seeing something that. Something has to have changed. Yeah, though. something has to have changed. And and then again, the question is uh, always coming back to us, uh, when are we going to return to normal? Well, it's not anytime soon, let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. So if your doctors are asking those questions and, and pestering you about, well, can't we just start doing things like we did before? I don't see that happening anytime, uh, anytime soon. Mm-hmm. Another thing that I found is uh, masks. I've been having to remind people to replace their masks in between patients uh, if they're in the uh, the surgical area. So if you're, I mean, this is kind of obvious, I think, mm-hmm. but if you're doing surgery cases and you're going out of the room, yeah. you have to replace that mask. At least the one that covers, if you're wearing an N95, you can wear the N95 underneath it for mm-hmm. until you remove until the you N95. Remove as soon as you remove the N95, you have to throw it out. Mm-hmm. But as long as you're wearing the N95, if you put another mask over it and then replace that mask between patients, that's mm-hmm. acceptable. And again, another little thing is that we're talking about, you know, noticing issues that were never really a major problem before. Multi-dose vials are coming back again as an issue. And I think it's because people are trying to save money. And you just have to remind people that you never draw up multi-dose vials that are used on multiple patients in a patient care area. You have to draw it outside of that. That is a very frequent citation. And depending upon how you do it, it could end up being an immediate jeopardy situation. So be very careful about drawing that up. Yeah, if you draw it up in a patient care area, it becomes 
becomes a single a single dose, dose right? Or single, right, exactly. Uh, and then, as I mentioned earlier, just another note here is just kind of stock up for the next pandemic. You know, buy supplies as products go on sale. Every place that I walked into, Sue, I know you've been off the road a, a couple weeks now, but mm-hmm. every place I walk into, the administrator's office is a pigsty. Yeah. Because it is stacked Stop. to the ceiling with cardboard boxes. That yeah. That is the new storage location. Uh, so everywhere I go, it's, uh, you know, the, hopefully they're keeping the clinical areas pretty clutter-free. But uh, mm-hmm. certainly everywhere else is uh, stacked to the ceiling with, with stuff. So uh, definitely keep an eye on that. Okay, we're going to take a short break and we'll come back and we'll talk to uh, Joe Outlaw from SIS about an important topic right now is, you know, how do we financially uh, bring that money in? And and uh, she has some tips on how to make sure your uh, your patients are fully aware of their responsibilities. So let's take a short break and we'll be right back. When it comes to the financial outcomes of your ambulatory surgery center, it has never been more important to maximize revenue, tighten the time to bill and collect payment, and reduce denials from payers. Yet without a keen focus on your revenue cycle, it can be difficult to achieve the results your center needs to remain profitable. The revenue cycle experts at Surgical Information Systems can help. With revenue cycle services from SIS, you can improve the financial health and performance of your ASC. SIS Revenue Cycle Services takes care of all aspects of the revenue cycle, including compliant coding based on documentation, claim preparation and submission, claim management, accounts receivable management, billing follow-up, month-end reconciling and closing processes, standard and customized reporting, and patient portion due and or balance management. By doing the heavy lifting, SIS Revenue Cycle Services leaves you to do what you do best, Provide affordable, high-quality care. In addition to managing your revenue cycle, the SIS RCS team uses a five-step process to monitor, analyze, and make recommendations for improvement to your revenue cycle performance. More than 50 ASCs enjoy these results from SIS Revenue Cycle Services every month. Faster claim submission. Shorter time to pay. Improved AR follow-up. Higher net collections expert coding to meet exact payer requirements, and an overall more consistent revenue cycle. Visit sysfirst.com to learn how the revenue cycle experts at SIS can deliver improved financial health for your ASC. Again, that's sysfirst.com to learn more about SIS revenue cycle services. So I'm here with Joe Outlaw, who is the Vice President of Revenue Cycle Operations at uh, Surgical Information Systems, one of our sponsors. Joe, welcome to our podcast. Thank you. I appreciate being here. So we're recording on a Friday, so good news is that we are uh, at the end of the week, and hopefully we uh, <laughs> can finally get at least two days off. But you've been very busy during this time, haven't you, with everything going on? Absolutely. Absolutely. Starting starting in March, like everyone else, our lives were turned upside down and revenue cycle was turned upside down and the ambulatory surgery business was impacted dramatically. That's right. We're all still dealing with it. And as uh, many of our centers, of course, were shut down, but that didn't mean that we <laughs> stopped doing business. And, and in the revenue cycle, of course, you still had to send those bills out. You still had to make sure that you're following up on, uh, on claims that uh, were not being processed. So, uh, uh, the pandemic has has had an enormous impact on our surgery centers uh, in, at so many different levels, and we're looking at an interesting year here with uh, the political environment, the possibility of tax increases in the future, all of which are really providing a unique scenario for us uh, in the ASC industry and a, a challenge to try to maintain our financial viability throughout this. So, so I thought I would uh, uh, talk to you about uh, what we can do, or at least you know some of the things that we can do in order to improve our financial bottom line. And Joe, one of the things that you work on extensively is uh, uh, working on the patient uh, responsibility side. Can you tell me uh, what have been the unique challenges that you're facing right now under COVID? Certainly. So as you mentioned, you know, finances, regardless of what's going on in the world, finances are important. We can't run our ASCs without covering our expenses and the self-pay portion due, the 
the amount paid to us directly by patients has grown every year since I've been in this industry and continues to grow. And this certain time with, with COVID and everything else has put a, a financial burden on our customers, on our patients, as well as our customer ASEs. And that particular part of the collection process has become more important than ever. So even before COVID, it was important to provide financial counseling prior to services being rendered. It was important to make it easy for our patients to pay, to make sure they understood their benefits. I think that is going to be at the forefront of everything we do going forward for the patients is communication and ease of technology and making things happen. So one of the things that we've done, certainly to even get through the initial stages of COVID, we, we have our, our revenue cycle team members in a position to work remote at any time. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's something important for the ASCs is to make sure their, their revenue cycle team members can work from anywhere. And given that, you have to be extremely careful about HIPAA and all of the protections that we need in place for people to be able to work everywhere. But the conversations with these patients have become one of the most important things we do now. We need to be empathetic. We need to understand Services happening now in our ASCs are medically necessary. There's very few that can be put off. And um, we certainly learned from the shutdowns in the beginning what that can do to the healthcare system if we do. So even though I'm not expecting another shutdown for ASCs, I am expecting perhaps a reverse in the tax cut in the very near future. And that's going to make it even harder on the ASCs specifically. Tax cuts have benefited the ASCs, but there's also patients that have benefited from tax cuts right. that have um, maybe had more money in their pocket. Yeah, and the unemployment situation still hasn't gotten back to where we were pre-COVID. So many of our, our patients probably are continued, well, even if they are employed, they might continue to have financial problems at the same time that they need health care services. Mm-hmm. What I've heard just in the past week or two, and I've, I've heard this from some clients talking about patients. I've also heard it from some of my personal acquaintances that we've, um, some of us have built up our uh, flexible spending accounts and we haven't been going out for much health care. We've built up on the flexible spending, but we've also saved some of our medical needs, hoping that we could get beyond this and be in a safer place. So I'm expecting the the ambulatory surgery centers to actually get busier between now and the end of the year. I think that people are going to have try to have things done to to be able to use their flex spending. But also on the other side, there are individuals who have met their out of pocket expenses for the year. They have there have been some sicknesses and they're also looking for health care. So as we go into a period, fourth quarter, where we're likely to be busy, busier, it is going to be important to to be on top of the self-pay portion due and have those conversations in advance of surgery being needed. Yeah, I've been on the road for the last uh, two weeks. Uh, and one question I ask all of our centers is how are, how is their volume compared to they, where they were uh, pre-COVID? And especially um, centers uh, like orthopedic centers in particular seem to be coming back. Uh, pain management comes back. GI is a little bit slower, but they are almost back to full volume. And I think you're right. Now we've got all that pent-up demand as we go into the fourth mm-hmm. quarter and with the uh, uh, the fact that hopefully by now they've met their uh, co-pays and deductibles. And, and especially if those things are going to be going up next year, uh, which could very well be the case given the, the financial situation, I agree that uh, we could be looking at a very uh, busy fourth quarter, which just began Yes, just began. And I will say that in, in the portfolio of business that I take care of in the revenue cycle, uh, when, when COVID first hit in April and March, the number of cases, of course, went down. As the summer has progressed, we are, as, as a division of surgical information systems, our volume is higher than it was before already. Right. So, like you said, some specialties are bouncing back quicker. Some, some are bouncing back slower, but every specialty now is scheduling routine cases and bringing them into the ASCs, and I do think that's going to pick up. So you did mention so, that um, that 
we have to be very careful about our communication with our, our patients. We know that they're still uh, quite sensitive about coming back to uh, healthcare facilities. I, I'm seeing that they're much more hesitant, of course, to go back to a hospital at this point. And I think that's what's driving some of the volume to us, uh, which means that in mm -hmm. our communication, we have to be very careful with our communication. So that from the clinical standpoint, we commu communicate how safe we are. Uh, but your point was, and that's what I'm going to ask you to look, talk about a little bit more, is uh, how, how can we best – uh, prepare the patient for the, the amount of money that they're going to owe for the procedure and what types of options should we communicate with uh, with them up front? And should we, well, I mean, I think we know the answer to this, but should they, they be uh, trying to collect that money up front? Yeah, very good question. So first of all, financial counseling is, is an expectation of our industry. It's, it's an expectation that we talk to patients in advance, prepare them for their out-of-pocket expense. It gets tough when we have add-on cases and last-minute cases, but the majority of our cases are scheduled in advance, and we have an opportunity to verify the benefits of the insurance plan. Hopefully, you're, you're in a, the clients are in a position, the, the ASCs are in a position to estimate out-of-pocket expense. They have their contracts loaded to their software. They've got someone who understands, and they can actually say, we're expecting your out-of-pocket expense to be this much. And that's when the conversation starts on whether the patient can afford to pay their portion due in advance. It is imperative to collect as much as we can in advance. As an industry, we have pretty much expected payment in advance for most of our services, and, and we've, been, we've been blessed to be able to collect those, but it's gotten tougher. Yeah. It's gotten a lot tougher, and there are competing entities for our, for our everyday payments. So in addition to having those conversations in advance, being prepared, educated on top of it, and knowledgeable so that you can explain to your patient how their benefits work, what their out-of-pocket expense is likely to be, then we can start the actual conversation of how do they pay for it. Now, in preferred situations or in best-case situations, the patients have their flexible spending accounts or they have the money to pay the bill. They came in understanding that there would be a patient portion due. So in those cases, it's extremely important to make it easy to pay. We are more and more every day, every week, communicating via text message. Mm -hmm. And the, the industry has several technology offerings on how to do that, some of the ASC software-specific it is bringing that with it. The, the text messaging, every study we've done internally shows that the response to the text messaging is so much better than the outbound phone calls nowadays. I don't answer my phone if I don't know who it is. You probably don't either very often, no. and that's what we're up against. But a text message can be clear to the point, HIPAA compliant, and get their attention. So communicating with text message has become very important. Emails are another um, improvement or change we are seeing is that email statements are becoming more prevalent in what we're doing, and, and some patients are expecting 100% electronic communication nowadays. So it's important to do that. So making it as easy as possible to pay, we, we have the discussions, whether it's via text, email, or verbal, and then links, links via text message and email to be able to go ahead and pay the patient's portion due and have it directly deposited to the ASC has become a big part of the industry. The other side of the coin is the patients that don't have that money. They don't have the flex spending account. They've got surgery they, they need. Their physician wants us to work it out. The referring surgeon wants us to work it out with them. So there are options. Certainly, we can decide in advance what payment plans we are okay to accept. We can base those decisions on cost versus reimbursement. So if the expected reimbursement from the insurance company would at least cover costs, we can be a little bit more flexible with our payment plans. But by and large, we are finding a bigger draw to some of the um, lending opportunities in healthcare. Some of the some of the companies out there that are specializing in healthcare and no credit check loans and um, no, like very low interest bearing loans for our patients. I think that's going to grow in importance as we move through this year and next year, especially if the tax law changes and the healthcare offerings begin to change as well. I wanted to point something out that uh, I remember from uh, my accounting days as well as my, uh, you know, when I first got in the industry. It's important uh, before you start extending credit yourself. In other words, if you, you mentioned payment plans. 
Um, you have to be very careful. Many states actually require you to act like a bank and provide uh, financial information about the amount of money that you're borrowing and what the terms of that. Even if you're not ex- if you're not charging interest, you are still usually obligated to provide information about that. So, Joe, can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. Yeah, so we we serve clients in most of the United States, and every state does have different regulations for extending credit. Mm-hmm. And we have several relationships, especially new relationships, where the ASC themselves has never heard that. Yeah, they they've never understood that once they extend a payment plan, they can be perceived as a creditor in their state, and different laws kick in. As a revenue cycle service, we study those laws. We make sure that we understand what's right in each state. And in some states, it's in, unless you're going to dot all those I's and cross all those T's and act as a lender you do have to have a different entity handling your payment plans. And that side of the industry is growing. There's more opportunity for that. And I think we need to make it clear that this goes for even the simplest plans. If you just if you have a conversation with a, a patient and and you say, okay, can you pay fifty dollars a month? That um, uh, that is a payment plan, and that does fall under those laws, correct? It does. Some states are pretty strict on it, and just just that payoff in ninety days, which which is it's pretty traditional for us. If we somebody pays a third of their out of pocket expense at the time of service, and then we they'll pay us in two new payments. We're fine with that. That seems completely innocent. Right. In some states, even that 90 days is considered a payment plan and you fall under certain rules and regulations on the state level. So I guess that drives us to the conclusion that it's probably wise to have some type uh, to not be a creditor to uh, if you don't get the payment up front or if you don't get the payment upon that first invoice going out, that uh, it's probably best for them to to seek some other financing vehicle, such as a credit card or uh, some of these other payment arrangements. Yes, yes. And I, I think it's important, very important. And, and we, me personally, in our revenue cycle, we, we recommend using an external entity for payment yeah. plans across the board, whether the state law is very specific or not. Um, but the ASC being in the position of creditor and being in the position of bad debt collector, even even when they use external en- entities like me, that's just not a good place you want to be. Yeah. And if you can if you can have have a different entity that understands that that understands the payment plans, understands the laws better than any of us, that is the best practice. And I think we're going to see more of that in our ambulatory surgery centers next year. Yeah. Because I'm expecting so many changes as far as as legislation and just our ability to pay our balance. Right. I want to go back to something you said earlier, which I, I really think we can't emphasize enough. You, you talked about how we have financial counselors. And, you know, I think in the in the surgery center, their t- job titles are often, you know, patient receivable coll- or collectibles uh, individual. I love that term mm-hmm. counselor. And I think that's an important emphasis to make here and, and uh, perhaps a change in the job description and a change in the functions and a change in the philosophy that those individuals who are, are talking to the patients about finances uh, need to have. So uh, just... Uh, elaborate a little bit more on on how uh, somebody can be an effective counselor versus somebody that's just calling up and saying, you owe such and such a dollar amount. And of course, drag into that the whole discussion of what their options are, you know, what they can, uh, what they right. can offer to the patient. Well, for sure, the, the role of financial counselor in an ambulatory surgery center is not an easy role. Mm-hmm. It takes a very certain personality type to be able to have these conversations. It is, we certainly don't want anyone handling those conversations as if they are a bad debt collector or yeah. already um, using harsh tactics. So when I say counselor, I, I mean that wholeheartedly. Mm-hmm. We, we're, we're in the position of helping our patients figure out how to have their health care when they have to pay so much themselves. And a, a very good financial counselor it has the empathy to pick up on the tone and the voice, to pick up on anything that's indicating this person doesn't have this money or is worried about this money because we need to have those conversations while we have them. Don't let them get off the phone and then have to worry about that themselves. And, and historically, when I, when I listen to phone calls and I coach and train and um, put financial counselors in place, that ability to understand what, what people are thinking or to pick up on cues that something is not easy for them or not right is, is very important. That, that, those conversations are um, 
they're just a talent within themselves. I even suggest uh, that that the individuals having the conversations put a mirror up in front of themselves. Nowadays, they may even be having personal conversations where they can video chat, but in the past, you know, that wasn't the case. And the the way that we're handling ourselves, the, the empathy that we need to express, we can often see that in ourselves. So it's, it's all about making the patient comfortable in the conversation, indicating you understand that not everybody has a $1,000 deductible tucked away. Yeah. Um, some people don't even have jobs nowadays. And, you know, another thing that's about to happen, and, and I've heard this just in the past few weeks, a lot of the individuals that were impacted by COVID layoffs were extended benefits through the end of the year. Um, we're going to have several people that the benef- have the benefits now between the end of the year and then they end. That's Next another time. reason we expect business to pick up a bit. Yeah. But it's those same individuals that haven't been working and perhaps don't have the, the funds to pay. So having the options for them and understanding what they're going through is going to be important to us still being able to provide them with health care. I just had a wild idea too, as I'm as I'm listening to you, is that people are getting more and more comfortable with with tools such as a, uh, um, uh, like you and I are communicating actually for the for this interview through Zoom, and even though uh, we uh, you know nobody will see the video here, uh, it is always a lot more effective uh, when you're communicating with people and you can see that expression of uh, see that, and, and I, I'm just wondering if there is a role for at least the more sophisticated patients to uh, have a Zoom session with them to talk about the finances, particularly when you're trying to explain some options that are available. Or they have some confusion about the bill. Not that anybody, of course, has any confusion ever about the bill that they get from a surgery center. But say that were to happen, <laughs> um, you know, being able to share in the screen what uh, what's up there instead of trying to talk them through on the phone. I, just just a, a random thought there. I, I don't know what you think about that, but maybe I'm just crazy here. No, I, I, it has centered my mind as as we've made our way. To, to remote over the past few months, video conferencing and seeing each other when we talk has become a really important part of running right. a business. Um, depending on which which study you, you read, most of the studies will say that about 80% of our communication is via body language and facial yeah. expression. So we lose every bit of that when we can't see each other. Right. And that's, where we are today. So I don't know about you, but in my world, when we call each other professionally, I call my peers and my colleagues, we're, we're calling via Zoom. Our, our video yeah. is an expectation of everyday operations. We haven't done it yet. And I don't know of anyone, but I do see a future for Zoom conferencing, um, any type of conferencing with right. patients specifically, get them on the phone, have them look at you. I think that that'll make it so much easier for our associates. Yeah to be empathetic financial counselors exactly. and to respond appropriately. Biggest disappointment I have is when I listen to a phone call, let's say the patient talked to us about patient portion D. We had the conversation. We provided financial counseling. Everything seemed fine when we hung up. They were going to bring a check to the ASD. Two hours later, they call and cancel their surgery. Yeah. When I listen back to those phone calls, there is generally a moment in that phone call, if you were really, really a communication expert, you could have picked up on the fact that the patient just started having a mini panic attack on their Yeah. And the, the visual expression of that would be so much easier to interpret than right. the verbal pauses. So I do think it's the future. I think you're tapping on something that might be the next big thing, and certainly it's going to have to be associated with uh some type of technology on their side, they don't have to implement or own or download. It's going right. to be some way that we can make it happen via phone, you know, just easy as we're running down the road and making things happen. Yeah. If my, if Sue's uh, mother, uh, who is in her 80s, can learn how to use Zoom, I think anybody can. So I think, and, and of course, as you it. said, uh, you know, we, uh, I, I, I probably shouldn't admit this, but sometimes I take Zoom calls uh, in the car, you know, because I'm in the car so much, you know, I don't participate in mm-hmm. quite the same way as I'm using it basically like a phone, uh, but I can still participate sure. in those, uh, in those conversations there. So zoom is, and I don't, we don't want to really use one brand name. There's, there's a uh, Google meet. There's a couple other options that are out there. Uh, but I, sure. I, it wouldn't be a bad idea to start thinking about that. 
Joe, uh, let's let's talk a little bit about the future. We talked a little bit about the future as in your conversation so far, but um, as we move into next year, I, I and one point that I think you've said, and let's just emphasize it again: the self-pay pay, uh, balance is it, it already is a big portion of our outstanding receivables. And uh, can you make some predictions about where that's going in the future, and 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 what our challenges are going to be in the future? Sure. Well, and for anyone that's been in this industry for a while, the pay, patient portion do grows every year as a percent of our expected revenue, but also as a percent of our earned revenue. In ASC, bad debt wasn't a problem for a while. I mean, it was just a teeny little number on our spreadsheet. It is growing. Um, it's growing because we are, we're accepting payments in advance and, and setting up the payment plans, whether we're using external entities or, or doing that ourselves. And then Something happens and the patients don't don't pay as expected. So when I just just looked at my portfolio and I realized that just in the past two years, the collections for, for my entire portfolio from the patient have grown from 16% of what we collect total to about 21% of what we collect total. Wow. Now that's just happened in the past two years. I expect that if if things happen like it's looking like they will and the tax tax cuts are reversed and there's changes with, with health care, that it's only going to get bigger and bigger. My prediction, I just had this conversation with my team, is that we'll be up to 30% within the next two years, maybe even more, depending on what happens. So if you think about whatever your ASC's EBITDA is, if you're lucky enough to have EBITDA, that you're actually having some, some money to give back to, to the investors, if you were to even let 5% of that 30% just go, you might not have those payouts. Right. It has become our bottom line. The self-pay portion has become what gives us the bottom line. So I do see it getting harder, tougher on us and the patient. And, of course, we need to make sure that we properly staff that function in our surgery center or outsource it, of course, as, as your company uh, takes on. Um, um, I, I find this myself when I walk into centers that are uh, telling me that they have uh, uh, an accounts receivable problem, that it's pretty obvious very quickly that first that, that maybe they have the wrong person in that position or worse yet, that that position is shared with other duties. I think I've said on the podcast a number of times, one, one, one organization I went to maybe about a decade ago, when I, when I did the investigation as to why their AR was high, I found out that the person that was doing the follow-up and accounts receivable was also the credentialing clerk. Um, so number one, it wasn't a full-time position. Number two, it was shared with a position that is just as busy as, if not busier than, uh, you know, many, uh, collection in individuals. So, uh, making sure that you have the right person in that position and then, uh, super that supervising them properly. And as you've ju just talked about having that person needs to have the right personality to be able to, uh, communicate effectively with patients and to be a true counselor. Absolutely. So you just touched on a point very near and dear to my heart. When, when I, when we have the revenue cycle in the ASC, you know, depending on the size of the revenue cycle, I'd say the average number of staff members assigned to the revenue, the back end revenue cycle at the ASC might be two or three in my average revenue, my average ASC. Those individuals are, are cross trained to do basically all functions or they wouldn't, they'd be in trouble when somebody couldn't come to work, right? right. So they, they cross-train, and the easiest thing, the most common thing to say, we'll do that tomorrow, is follow-up and, sadly, financial counseling. Even the financial conversations, sometimes we put those off because yeah. insurance is going to pay us decent anyway, and that patient might cancel their case, and you know, we come up with all these reasons. But if you think about follow-up, and that is after the fact, let's say we've done a good job with financial counseling. Um, but we do, we are one of the ASCs that allows payment plans and you need somebody calling on the back end to ask for that payment plan. That function, following up on self-pay portion due and even insurance portion right. due is the one thing that will be put off till tomorrow. And so one of the ways we cover that, certainly if you're outsourcing your revenue cycle, you're, one of the reasons to do that is, is we have multiple employees, much more than you could possibly have in the back office of an ASC. We also have specialized positions. So 
Follow-up isn't told to do other things. That is something that happens every day, regardless, as is financial counseling. And that in an ASC, unless you unless you really say this is what you're going to do and you cannot be pulled, that is what falls by the wayside. And again, it's our bread and butter, it's the bottom line. Right. To do it, to be doing the pre-work and the after-work on these patient portions. Joe, it's been a pleasure, as always, talking to you. This is the first time you've been on the podcast, but you and I have been friends for uh, for years. So uh, thank you so much for uh, spending the time with us, and uh, um, thank you for the great advice that you've uh, you've provided to our listeners. Thank you, John. I appreciate being here again, and you have a great weekend. Thanks. You too. You are never alone in the ASC industry. Many organizations are eager to provide an opportunity to keep up on all aspects of running an ASC, and in this section, we highlight upcoming events. Now we're starting to get some information, mm-hmm. at least on the virtual mm-hmm. conferences, and we thought in this section we would talk about the things that are coming up with uh, with us, too. Okay. So if you'd like your event to be included in the podcast, please send the event information mm-hmm. to us at info at ASCpodcast.com. We'd be glad to put that down. It has been very difficult to get this type of information uh, out of centers, and we just clearly don't have the time to go to every single website for every state association. So if you want it out there, please uh, tell us about that. And to that end, uh, Beth LaBoyer provided me with uh, – Three conferences coming up, though one of them is self-serving here. So, uh, you know, Beth and uh, the California Association of Amateur Surgery Centers, CASA, uh, has really jumped into the virtual conferences full steam, and she's done a fantastic job. Uh, And to that end, on October 9th, which is this coming Friday, I'm doing an ASC financial boot camp with her. So I just did the rehearsal this morning. Uh, Everything looked good. I'm uh, very excited about doing that. It's about a four-hour session. It'll be probably about five hours with breaks. But uh, it's a boot camp really designed for uh, anybody that, uh, you know, wants a kind of an introduction to ASC finances. And it is available. If you're a member of a state association, you get a discount. Uh, if you're a member of the California Association, you get a discount. And, uh, and even the full price is, uh, is not bad at all. So it's open to anybody in any state. October 20th and 27th, uh, CAS is putting on another webinar, uh, preparing to add total joints and complex procedures to your ASC. Uh, Again, this is a great conference, not just for people in California, but outside of the state also. We know that this is becoming a hot topic, and we know that as hospitals become less desirable sites for uh, surgery, I think we're going to find a lot more movement to the ambulatory surgery setting here. So that's October 20th and 27th. And November 5th, 12th, and 19th, uh, CASA, the California Association, is doing their 2020 Infection Prevention and Surveillance in the ASC seminar. They've been doing this for about 10 years, Sue, and I think I talked to her today. I asked her if it's going to be specific to California, mm-hmm. and she indicated not really, that you know there are some California-specific uh, things, but it is a very intensive course. It's three days here. Uh, I don't. I mean, it's not the whole day, but I think uh, it's a good way to uh, learn about infection prevention. It's uh, critical, of course, for infection preventionists in today's mm-hmm. setting. And certainly, if you're in California, definitely uh, check it out. And in other states, if you uh, need some updates on it, you know, definitely check it out. You can get more information at casurgery.org. Uh, and as I mentioned in the beginning, the ASC Finance, Accounting, and Reimbursement Fall Seminar, uh, which is a follow-up to our spring seminar, which was a huge success, uh, and a recording of the seminar is available at ASCpodcast.com. Uh, and by the way, we're taking $100 off that uh, the cost of that if you need some uh, AEU credits or want to learn uh, the basics about finance and accounting. But the fall conference is going to be December 3rd and 4th. It's a joint production of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey and Christina Benton of Coding Compliance Management. The fall conference will include information on the final 2020 HOPD ASC CMS regulatory updates and more finance and accounting and reimbursement topics to extend our discussion from the spring conference, including more advanced topics, discussion of revenue cycle and reimbursement, advanced financial management, budgeting, strategic planning. So, uh, uh, sign up is available at our website at ASCpodcast.com. And as we've mentioned before, 
The administrators boot camp, very important for uh, new administrators or people that want to become administrators. This boot camp is a very comprehensive program to prepare ASC administrators and includes a lot of reading materials, uh, virtual private consultations with me, and an intensive four-day virtual conference. It's going to be presented January 26th through 29th in 2021. And this program is designed for new administrators, new nurse managers, administrators that wish to enhance their skills, and administrators that wish to prepare for certification. And the ASC Administrators Bootcamp is by far the industry's most comprehensive preparation for the role of an ASC Administrator or Nurse Manager. So if you want to get $300 off, uh, go visit our website at ASCPodcast.com. And just a reminder for everyone to become a patron member of the podcast, major addition to the uh, patron members, they can now access some of the virtual conferences from 2020, including its New World Conference, which was a two-day conference, Infection Control in-Service to Meet the Challenges of COVID-19, the uh, 2020 ASC Mandatory Education Program, and the ASC Roadmap to Recovery. Uh, So for more information about that, go to our website at ASCPodcast.com. Well, that's it for this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey. Join us again, and please consider becoming a patron by going to our website at ASCPodcast.com and spread the word about our podcast with your friends and colleagues and do us the honor of hitting the subscribe button. The sound editor for this episode is Susan Cronkite. Executive producer is John Gailey. Research assistance is provided by Susan Cronkite. Jenna Alvarez, Judy D'Ambrosio, Alex Borneman, Zach Kalaritis, Lori Rodericks, and Denise Van Buren. Music is provided by Media Sushi and Mike Noah, and the ASC Podcast with John Gailey is posted on Podbean and is available on all major podcast channels. This podcast is an educational and operational tool and is not intended to be a comprehensive resource for all rules, regulations, and standards that an ambulatory surgery center must meet. The advice provided should not be considered as, nor does it constitute legal advice or opinion. When reviewing specific situations involving legal and regulatory issues, attorneys and other professionals should be consulted. This has been a production of Eden Group Development. All rights are reserved. This episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey is sponsored by Surgical Information Systems, SIS. SIS's mission is to deliver solutions and services that can help surgery providers, regardless of care setting, improve their organization so they can deliver the highest level of care to their patients. For more information, go to sisfirst.com. If you're interested in advertising or sponsoring the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, please email us at info at ASCPodcast.com. We would love to hear your questions and comments. Please email us at comments at ASCPodcast.com.